0: Our ushers will be coming by in just a minute with the note sheets and pencils. And if you need a Bible, don't uh, be shy. Raise your hand and let us know so that we can bring one to you. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We'll be studying verses 5 through 12 this morning as we ask the Lord to help truth to overcome unbelief. The preaching of the Word is essential for the well-being of God's people. And it's desperately needed by a world that is in so many ways confused about what is real. And so we're we're blessed to be able to come together every Lord's Day and um, in in several ways, study the Word together, and let the Lord uh, permeate our thoughts and our hearts and emotions with the things that are holy and true and eternal. So as we approach the end of Paul's letter, we find in his closing comments some very practical communication regarding the real-life relationship that he has with this church here in Corinth. In the final verses of the book, Paul's going to lay out his next few steps in ministry. He's going to give them a tentative time frame for his next visit to Corinth. And then he's going to provide them with instructions for how to interact with some other ministers who are going to be making their way to that city very soon. So I want to make two quick observations before we read the text together. This kind of what you might call housekeeping interaction at the end of the letter actually lends to the historical authenticity of the, the scripture. First Corinthians 13, If it were a forgery, if it were a fake, then you wouldn't likely see such specific and very pointed communication like we're about to read. Fairly early in the history of God's church, there were examples of people writing out doctrine and then or maybe perhaps forging a letter from somebody famous to a church, and then signing the name of a well-known figure. in in an effort to try to lend weight and legitimacy to the doctrines they were trying to promote. There was no doubt an an element of spiritual warfare in this as Satan is rightly called the father of lies and he loves to fill creation with half-truths, with twisted sayings in an effort to make people worship something less than God or to worship the true God in inappropriate ways. It also reminds us of how quickly people began to see the writings of the apostles as scripture, that people were trying to put their names on documents that were not from the apostles and pass it off as something that came from the mouth of the Lord. That's why in 2 Thessalonians, at the very end of that letter, we see that Paul writes, See, I write this greeting in my own hand. He's trying to help them to see that this is authentically his communication to that church. And so as we read these verses, some of it might seem kind of academic. It might seem detached from what we're experiencing here as Paul's communicating directly to his friends about their interactions, but it actually helps to bolster the historical significance. When we see here at the end of 1 Corinthians, and at the end of most of Paul's letters, in fact, when we see him mention several key figures and speak so specifically about plans, that would only be relevant if the letter were truly written from him to the Corinthians, and it provides a kind of evidence that a historian would be looking for if they were trying to differentiate an authentic piece of correspondence from a clever counterfeit. So that's the first observation I want to point out before we read the Scripture together. But secondly, we also see within these verses a subtle theme in the content of these closing remarks. Namely, we see that the church of God in Corinth is not an isolated body. They have friends. They have allies who are striving to help them mature in the faith. People throughout the Roman Empire and soon throughout the world would be lifting up the same Messiah that they did in worship to be glorified and magnified in their lives. But while these relationships are very beneficial and should be nurtured, there are others whose goal is to hinder and to put a stop to the godly work that Christians everywhere are doing, even those in Corinth every church must be aware of not only its allies that God has provided for them, but also its adversaries. And so that is the main topic that we'll be discussing today as we read through verses 5 through 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So if you don't have your Bible open, like I don't, then go ahead and open it there to 1 Corinthians 16, and I'll I'll read these verses out loud. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia... For I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries." When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has the opportunity." Let's have a word of prayer and let's thank the Lord God for these verses and for the truths contained within them. Almighty God, we praise you and thank you for minds to understand, eyes to see, ears to hear, and and physical bodies that we might respond in obedience to the scripture in a serving way, in a loving way, that we might profess our devotion to you and our commitment to one another. I pray, God, that as we look at the example of Paul and his deep concern for a church in Corinth, a church that he was not at regularly, but a church that he had connections to, a church where the gospel that he loved so dearly was being preached. I pray, Father, that we would see in this example of of cooperation and mutual care and prayer for one another, Lord, a model for which the church today should continue to function. Help us, God, to be mindful of those who worship you in various places throughout the world, that our prayers may resound for the saints, even those we don't know, even those we have never met, but will one day worship you together with forever and eternity. We praise you for the time we are spending together, God, and we pray that you would work in our hearts, Lord, to see what it is you want us to see this morning through these words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Apostle Paul will soon be on the move. He has been laboring in Ephesus, but he will soon be traveling through several churches in the area of Macedonia. In the course of life, we we have to make plans regarding what seems to be the best course of action. But because of the sovereign rule of our Savior, those plans must always be subject to God's divine amendment. In other words, when Paul says here, He will come to them Lord willing, he knows that these plans might be reasonable, they might uh, have good intentions, but God can totally change things up if He so desires. And that is why... The Lord Jesus taught us to pray in that way. When we are to pray to Him, we are to ask for His kingdom to come and His will to be done so that in all things, our hearts would be subject to His will, which, let's confess, often His will is very different than what we we desire. His plans are more deeply understood. He, He knows the future from today, and so He knows what we need. Paul's intentions were very clear. He was going to travel to Corinth by way of land not until Pentecost, but when that holiday had come, he was going to make a journey to his friends there in Corinth to see them physically. He was going to take a northerly route so that he could make stops at several important churches that he had already helped to establish in his previous mission journey through uh, southern Europe. So we have a map on the screen here where you can see kind of expanded picture of where this region lies. And you might see that if somebody was to leave Ephesus, which on this map is on the right-hand side, and were to travel west on a northerly route, they would run into several different areas. They would run into Philippi and Amphipolis, Apollonia, Thessalonica, Pella, and even Berea. And so this is the route that Paul intends to take, a northerly sweep across the, uh, the southern portion of Europe, and then eventually land in Corinth, where he hopes to spend not just a brief visit, Not just a little stop in and say hi, but he wants to spend some quality time with these friends. And that's not really surprising considering all the errors that he has brought up in this letter, things that he's really hoping to help them grow in, ways that they can improve as a church. He wants to not just tell them to get their act together. He wants to be there to minister through their growth and their maturity. Not that he's the only minister doing that. The church in Corinth had elders, and I have no doubt that the elders were reading this letter and we're hoping to implement some of the changes that he instructed. But his heart for these people means that he wants to be there alongside them as well. Harsh storms uh, in the coastal lands that we just showed in that map often meant that in the wintertime, travel was dangerous. So Paul intends to hopefully even stay through the winter with his friends uh, to hunker down for quite a few months until the coastal paths open up and the seafaring way becomes less dangerous. But here's what actually happens. Those are his great grand plans, but what actually happens is an unknown emergency in Corinth prompted a premature visit, likely a trip that uh, Paul took directly by route through sea before the winter came. And after this visit, Paul follows up the visit with a somewhat harsh letter to the Corinthians, kind of a scathing rebuke to them. That is a letter that we do not have. It's been lost to uh, antiquity. Later on, he sent a follow-up letter to that harsh letter, one that we now refer to as 2 Corinthians. So in the the vast course of history, there was a first letter that we do not have from Paul to Corinth. There's a second letter that we have that we actually call 1 Corinthians in the Scripture. Then there's a third letter, the scathing letter that we don't have, and then a fourth letter to the Corinthians, which we actually call our 2 Corinthian letter. More than simply an itinerary, these verses that we just read this morning, display Paul's eagerness to share his plans to be with these brothers and to care for them. And it also shows them how important it is for them to recognize that there are other brothers that care for them as well. While congregational autonomy has its virtues, we talked last week a little bit about how Baptist churches traditionally give great weight to local control. They don't try to lead from afar, but they allow the people that God has appointed in those churches to be shepherds over the people there and to direct them in the way they need to go, while Congregational autonomy has great virtues. We are to acknowledge and benefit from those who act as allies to us in the gospel ministry, even those who are not directly a part of our local church. To serve God all by ourselves, to to cut ourselves off from the brothers and sisters in the world that God is using to grow His kingdom would be not only unwise, but it would be unprofitable for us. We would be missing out on the spiritual gifts of some brothers and sisters throughout the world that God has richly blessed, that God has has grown in grace that, that might be a benefit to us. There should be a concerted effort on the part of the local church to establish connections with the broader community of saints and to recognize that we share the same ultimate mission. Now, as much as our Western culture has worked to emphasize the individual nature of our relationship with God, when Scripture describes the church we consistently see the people of God referred to in terms of their corporate togetherness. So when God talks about His church, He talks about it as if it is a body. Not as if it is a a vast membership of individuals, but He talks about how each of those individuals come together to form one special spiritual organism, the body of Christ, a body of Christ that is enabled and empowered to go into the world and do the work of God there. He talks about those who follow after Jesus as if they are a flock of sheep. One group of individuals come together under the care of a single good shepherd, and that good shepherd has under-shepherds. Elders who take care of the churches in various locations who also help to look after the flock and to keep them from error and harm. Uh, We have spoken of in the the scriptures as being adopted by grace into the eternal family of the Lord. That God the Father is our literal Father in a sense. That He is the one taking care of us and, and looking after the household. He provides for our needs. He protects us from errors that are outside He manages the household, so it continues to be a place of love. You see how the descriptions that God uses in scriptures of his church, it's not just one-on-one relationships, although it's not that one-on-one relationships aren't important. But we can't look at those relationships as being divorced from this greater corporate worship that God has called us to partake in. While each unique individual is important to the Lord, there is this important element of togetherness and belonging that Christ has built into the idea of the church. And if we're to be his holy bride, we must do so together with all of those whom he has chosen to bring out of darkness and, uh, and into the light. So in one of the proverbial sections of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, which we preached through uh, a couple few years ago, the preacher Solomon writes wisely about the importance of partnership and camaraderie. This is in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 in the Old Testament. Remember that uh, because the book of Ecclesiastes finds its place in the, proverb, or the proverbial wisdom section of the Old Testament, you, you find a lot of nuggets for life, a lot of great practical wisdom and, and direction. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verses 9 through 12, uh, the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes writes this, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken." So the preacher of Ecclesiastes has reminded us how important it is for us who love the Lord to, to come together, to find strength in our mutual affection for our God, for our Savior. And uh, these verses apply to the local church, but they also bro- apply broadly to the church uh, throughout the world. Two weeks ago, uh, eight men from our church got to travel down south to what's called the Shepherd's Conference, and we've spoken to some length about our experience there. And at the Shepherds Conference, we were in a room full of men who love the Lord God. 3,000 men singing praises to His name. Faithful men, dedicated men who have given their lives in service to the advancement of the kingdom of heaven. Fellowship with those other brothers was such a sweet experience for us. As we are striving to shepherd our church well, as we are striving to give direction and guidance to our own families, our wives and our children's, these men were doing the same exact thing. And as we came together to be able to lift up our voices in adoration to, to Jesus Christ, there was a great sense of this is where we belong. We belong together, worshiping our God and, and, and praising His great name. And we belong that way because for eternity we will spend time together in that practice, in that practice of exalting Jesus Christ and, and declaring the greatness of His character and His perfect to complete work. These This time of fellowship gave us meaningful exposure to other aspects of the body of Christ. Uh, Some Baptist, some Presbyterian, other non-denominational churches, and and some were from California, but others were from as far away as Germany or Kyrgyzstan. There were brothers from 41 different countries there at uh, at the Shepherds' Conference. And so what a, what a blessing it was for us to be able to get to see just a little glimpse of some of the things that God is doing throughout the world and to recognize that while we might just be a small congregation, a little church that's trying to be faithful and diligent, that there are churches like this all throughout the world that God is using in powerful ways to minister to the needs of the people whom he has called to himself. So here at the end of this letter from Paul, the apostle will draw attention uh, will draw the attention of the Corinthians to a number of the allies that they have in gospel ministry. Though there were no doubt many more than are mentioned here in this letter, the next few verses key in on three specific individuals who are determined to be a blessing to the Corinthian believers. Now, the first mentioned, of course, is Paul himself. He is an ally to them. And to be fair, as we've read through this letter, it's clear that some in Corinth did not really think of Paul as much of an ally, but rather as a rival. Or, or somebody who really couldn't do them much good. And so Paul has worked through some of those biases in the earlier chapters of the letter. And this was primarily because Paul was someone who taught a very specific and focused gospel. And Paul did not leave room for everyone to bring their own personal interpretations of God's Son and His work to bear upon the gathering of the saints. But Paul makes it clear time and time again throughout the course of this correspondence that he is for the Corinthians. He is not against these Christians. He wants to see them flourish and thrive and represent Christ well. Even in the moments when he confronts their sin or speaks firmly to them about some error that they uh, had committed that he needed to correct, he does so with the language of brotherhood. He does so with the language of hopeful expectation. He is trusting that upon receiving this instruction that these Corinthians will not push back against him, that they will not reject it. They won't tear the letter up and throw it in the garbage he's confident that they will see his love for them. He's confident that he will see the guiding hand of Christ working through this apostle to help this church become stronger. Paul loves the people of Corinth. And the great motivation for the letter that we have in our hands was first to bring glory to God through the spread of the kingdom. And then secondly, to help the church in Corinth to grow in their love and devotion to the Savior and to one another. This can only be good for them. So Paul was constantly desiring Uh, Their blessing and their growth. He wants them united. He wants them wise. Think about what he's written about in this letter. He wants them pure. He wants them to be able to stand against sexual temptations and against the sins of their former lives. He wants them to look out for one another's needs, even for the needs of a weaker brother that maybe doesn't have all their doctrine in line yet. He wants them to be at peace with one another and not engage in distracting lawsuits against one another. He wants them to have strong marriages. And to function in a beautiful way in that covenant. He wants them to actively serve one another and use their gifts appropriately. He wants them to benefit from the Lord's table and the grace that it provides to the people. And he wants to see them flourishing in faith and abounding in love. Paul said what was true rather than flattering his friends. And that's one of the marks of a true friend. A true ally is someone who cares enough about you that they're willing to pull you aside and with grace and patience. Reveal something that they see in you that doesn't match the scripture that you profess to care for. That is a true friend. And if you have friends like that, don't let the enemy make you feel worn out by them. Don't let your enemy make you feel bitter towards that friend because these are people that God has put into your life to help you to grow in grace. We all need those things. Every Christian who brings a correction to a brother is also a Christian who needs one from time to time. And so let us approach one another with humility as Paul has approached these Christians in Corinth with a humble heart, not willing to flatter them and and to try to win their affection by telling them what they want to hear, but rather caring enough about them that he is willing to say, brothers and sisters, this is out of line. And by the grace of God, I, I urge you, I implore you to trust in the things that Christ has revealed to you, to walk in the way that he would have you walk. Paul was intent to pursue them. Even when they were very critical of him, for unjustified reasons. Despite the evidence that some in Corinth vocally favored other preachers beside him and others even questioned his status as an apostle, he did not allow personal offense to break the bonds that united these people together. He wanted to stay near to these friends. He wanted to work out those differences that they had. In the second uh, letter to the Corinthians that we have in our scripture, Paul gives us a little more detail about the criticisms that he had to contend with among the brothers and sisters in this city. In 2 Corinthians 10 verses 9 through 11, he says, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. They're saying that of Paul. You see the, the bitterness there in those words that he's quoting from some unknown source says, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when we are absent, we do when we are present. So Paul was aware that there are deep criticisms to him and some of the other apostles as well. They, they make these brash claims, these slanderous accusations that Paul is always so mighty in his letters, but when he comes to us, he's weak. He's, he's afraid to come to us. He sends these letters, but he won't come and back up these words. And he's telling them, listen, we intend to come and to be the very thing that we're calling you to be. We want to be an example to you. We don't want to just speak things that we don't do. So though he's, he was said to be mighty with the pen, but meager in person, Paul is not a paper apostle. We see in his remarks here a persistent desire to spend face-to-face time with these brothers and sisters in Corinth, that they would see by his conduct that his words weren't just idle talk, they weren't just empty threats. He was desiring to help them to grow in a very uh, practical way, so that his life, might, their lives, might uh, match the the lives of those whom God had called to be their leaders. Consider what an example of Christ's likeness Paul had already displayed to them. He's, dis- uh, he's displayed great. Patience to them. He has shown them that he is willing to strive alongside them, even though they're really struggling with some very elementary things. Remember where he talked to the Corinthians about how he wished to bring them to deeper things, but they're only still able to handle rudimentary concepts in theology? But he is patient nonetheless. He is striving alongside them. He's not ready to wash his hands of these brothers who have done him some harm and who have criticized him. Uh, We've learned about his careful decision not to take a salary but to instead work with his own hands as a tent maker by day and then in the afternoons and the evenings to go and preach the gospel, first in the synagogue and then later in the marketplace. He he used his free time for for the advancement of the gospel. He did not demand a salary from them because he didn't want them to think that his motives were were purely his income. And he's taken the time to respond to a great many of their concerns. Uh, We've noticed in the process, especially the second half of this letter, how Paul is directly responding to many of the things that they brought up to him in the first letter that we do not have. Remember that phrase that we spoke of last week, now concerning what you spoke of? And then he goes back to this concept that they have a question about or or some issue that they have raised with him and then he deals with them one by one, seven different times, he addresses directly something that they have brought up to him. And there's evidence that there are far, other t- far many other times that he's indirectly addressing these things that they have asked him about. So he's being very shepherding and very concerned with what they consider important. He's listening to them. He's recognizing that they need to grow and he's trying to meet them where they're at. So too has he demonstrated humility and an obvious lack of self-promotion in the way that he presents himself. Even when he's trying to defend his status as an apostle, he does so with a a humble state of mind. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, he talks about how he did not come to them with some lofty speech. He's not trying to be some polished orator, some impressive rhetorician. He wants to come to them preaching Christ alone and Christ crucified. Very simple message, but powerful. In the third chapter, he talks about how He didn't do all the work in Corinth, though he was instrumental in the formation of that church. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, and several other apostles did work. He says, but God is the one who brought the growth. So Paul is humble here. He doesn't think beyond his ability. He knows that if anyone is going to do what is right, it's because the work of the Lord is going on in their hearts. And in chapter 4, he says that he doesn't bother to even judge himself on all of his own sins because his... Judgment is limited. There are things that he's doing wrong that he's not even aware of. And so he hesitates hesitates to even look at his own life and and judge himself. And so those Corinthians need to be careful in judging one another. So there's this sense of humility in the way that that, uh, Paul approaches the Christians in in Corinth. And really the whole letter showcases what an ally Paul has been to these, these believers and how ultimately his desire for them is only to glorify Christ more completely. But do not miss here the very important example that Paul gives us regarding a sober minded understanding that we alone are not what some other Christian needs. Paul knew that though the Corinthians needed his help, they needed more than just him. Obviously, more than any earthly ally, their greatest help is Christ, right? Paul professes that of himself, and he knows it is true of them as well. Jesus is our first and greatest resource. But additionally, there are other servants in the kingdom that would be a blessing and a benefit to these Corinthians as they grow. Paul's not building the church around himself. He's building the church upon the one foundation that will last. He's building the church upon the rock of Jesus Christ. And with that, as his drive and his priority, any faithful servant of the Lord who preaches Christ, who points people to Christ, who relies on Christ, will serve as a faithful ally to this church as well. Timothy is one such ally. And so the next individual that Paul talks about is this brother Timothy who's going to join them shortly. 1 Corinthians 16 verses 10 and 11 again. It says, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord. How? As I am. See, there's uniformity in their approach. We don't need a hundred different flavors of of ministry in, in Christianity. What we need... It's to follow what God has taught us to do in worship to Him. And when we go to different churches, of course, things are going to feel a little different from time to time. The edges of things will be impacted by our culture and our history and our background. But by and large, wherever you go, friend, when you go into a Christian church, you should hear the preaching of God's Word. You should hear the singing of praises and hymns and songs as we exalt God and we lift Him up. You should hear prayer as the people of God bow the knee together and seek God in spiritual communication with him. You should see people giving to the work of God through their time and their resources and serving one another. This is what the church is supposed to be. Timothy desires that as well. And so Paul has no qualms in sending this brother to minister in just the same way that he's been ministering to them. Timothy is the bearer of of true things. He has a reputation for sticking with the real gospel and not deviating from it. He is one who labors hard for the advancement of the kingdom. He has been present in missionary journeys in the past with Paul. And he's been carrying on the good work of the Lord where he is at there in Ephesus with with Paul himself. So Timothy had also helped in the founding of the church in Corinth. He wasn't a stranger to them. He and Silas joined the good work in Acts 18 verse 5 so he was no stranger to these Corinthian believers, but he was likely a potential target of the Corinthians because of Paul's close association with Timothy. Timothy was Paul's protege. And so some bitterness that they might have towards Paul likely spilled out onto Timothy as well. And so he anticipates that and he writes this letter helping them to understand that when Timothy arrives, and it could even be the hand of Timothy that is delivering this letter to them, When Timothy arrived, they were to treat him with respect and kindness and to recognize him not as a rival, but as a brother in Christ. Paul had early mentioned that Timothy was already on the way to Corinth. In chapter 4, verse 17, he says, That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. And so here Paul is prepping the Corinthians for his arrival. So Paul gives three specific instructions to the Corinthians regarding how they're to treat this gospel ally. When he comes, they are to put him at ease. It's the first thing he mentions, that they are to put him at ease. And that means that they're to make sure that he knows that he's welcome there in Corinth. He's not an outsider or an enemy to them, but that he will be welcomed in with open arms, that he might continue to do the gospel work that he was previously doing in Ephesus with Paul. Timothy does not yet have the notoriety of, a, of an apostle. Some people consider and they look back at his work and they think he was kind of like a, 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 almost an apostle, right? He's always with the apostles. He is an elder of a church. He's, he's doing a, a great and faithful work. But at this time, he's still a young man. And so he's encouraging those in Corinth not to dismiss him. The previous instruction that Paul had given about appreciating the giftedness of the brothers and sisters in Christ comes into play here. Remember that the The Corinthians had exalted some people because they had more exuberant and outward gifts and they had marginalized others whose gifts seemed more mundane and normal. Remember that Paul's instruction there was to recognize and to value each member of the body of Christ and to not make celebrities out of some while ignoring others. So too are they to receive Timothy as they would receive Apollos or as they would receive Paul himself and to not treat him as a a secondary brother, but to love him and to care for him and to receive the true things he has to say as long as those things are coming from the Scripture. Secondly, he tells the Corinthians not to despise this brother. In other words, do not hold a grudge against him if you are angry at me. If you have a bitterness towards my teaching or if some of the things that I have taught steps on your toes a little bit, do not abuse Timothy because of his connection to me. And thirdly, they they are instructed to help him on his way. Timothy's not going to be there for very long, but when he is ready to go, they are to show him support and they're to meet his needs so that he is able to make the difficult return back to wherever he is that God is sending him on his journey. So they are to appreciate what this ally brings to them and they are to reciprocate a great love for him and for his willingness to come and bless them and be a a support in their, their walk with Christ. So Paul is an ally in ministry. Timothy is an ally in ministry. In verse 12, Paul also mentions Apollos as another key ally to the church in Corinth. In verse 12, he says, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come... When he has an opportunity. Now first I want us to notice here that Paul and Apollos, they are truly allies in ministry. Paul and Apollos are not two parallel paths, each one trying to build a little kingdom around their special kind of apostleship. That's not the case at all. Paul cares for Apollos and Apollos cares for Paul. There might have been some wonder if that was the case based on the first three chapters where it's clear that the Corinthians' preference for some teachers over others had the potential to pit these apostles against one another and cause them to act as rivals. We know from Acts that Apollos had a Jewish heritage. We know that he was very skilled in the handling of God's word. He had a great background in scripture. We also know that he was at the same time very bold and eloquent in his personal preaching. These are traits that likely made him quite appealing to many who sat underneath his teaching. And in the introductory remarks to this letter, Paul confronts the fact that some in Corinth were aligning themselves to one leader in the church and rejecting others. They had their favorites. If Paul were not a redeemed man, filled with the Holy Spirit, and focused on the goal of exalting Christ instead of advancing himself, then we might have seen him respond with bitterness. We might have seen him respond in jealousy, to a leader like Apollos who had come to Corinth uh, Corinth later than he had and in the eyes of some had eclipsed his work. But that is certainly not the case here. Paul's concern is not to grow his personal notoriety, but through all things for Christ to be exalted. And since Apollos is is a blessed and gifted man, he has no qualms sending this man to accomplish such an aim. He doesn't hesitate to ask Apollos to comply with what appears to be a Corinthian request in an earlier letter that Paul send Apollos to them. Apollos is a familiar friend of the congregation, one who enjoys a strong reputation among the people there, one who has been a help to them in the past. However, you notice here that Apollos does not comply with Paul's request to go to Corinth. He elects not to do this. Instead, Apollos demonstrates in his decision to not travel to Corinth at this time That he's determined to order his time and his efforts according to his calling and not just according to his affections. To be allies in gospel ministry is more than just camaraderie with brothers and sisters in Christ. It's more than just fun. It is obedience to Christ. It is obedience to the calling that needs to supersede the social joys of even community with saints. The servants of God must not be driven by a desire to please men or to please themselves with the company of other people that they enjoy. Your elders love you. We care for this church. It is a happiness to us to get to be a part of a congregation that sincerely wants to grow in the Word, that allows us to teach the Word so thoroughly and without shame. We are grateful to minister to each individual here, your personalities, the affection that you show to us, the consideration that you give to your leaders. But even if you were a bunch of stinkers, we would continue to minister to you. Even if your attitudes were sour and even if you were rotten to us and, you, and even if you were talking about us behind our backs, we would continue to do this work because we're not just here because the potlucks are great and the fellowship is a lot of fun and we know that Steve's going to open up his house every year for the Super Bowl and, and we know that, that people have resources that, that are going to bless us. We're not here for those reasons. We're here because God has put a calling upon our hearts. And so, Ross and Paul and Sean and myself, we desire to do the gospel work of ministry. And it just so happens to be a blessing above and beyond that we get to do that to a congregation that is kind to us and that it gives us a warmth of belonging. Uh, But our calling is more important than our friendships are. And so, Apollos, though he probably wanted to go back to Corinth, he has these strong connections with them. He knows that God has got him doing something very important in the moment, and he doesn't want to be distracted from that. Our status as allies is not based on our affection or approval of one another. It's based on something greater. It is based on our mutual respect and affection for Christ the King. Paul was in some ways making... A similar decision to Apollos, though he desired to see the Corinthians and spend time with them. The opportunity that God had opened up for him in Ephesus, he says, was too advantageous for him to walk away from. That's why he's going to wait until the holiday of Pentecost to to make his trip. His visit would have to wait because the crucial gospel work that was directly in front of him needed to be completed. He didn't want to miss this window of opportunity. Sometimes we have to make difficult decisions like this too. Sometimes we we look at our lives and God gives us open doors and opportunities. And some of them we might really love to, to take those opportunities. But because God has given us a scripture that helps us to properly order what is important in our minds and our hearts and in our very lives, there are times when we have to give up something good for the greater cause of faithfulness to Christ. A young woman who has put in years of training to be proficient at a job suddenly becoming pregnant and having a family to take care of, in prayer might decide to set aside that career and recognize that those children need her attention, especially in a time like this. So there are there are times when a mom will have to make that priority decision to focus on what God has truly called her to do, to raise these children up. A Christian may put off a promotion because it would impede on his freedom to worship the Christ on the Sabbath day. There are times when we might have upward mobility in our place of work, but if they're going to demand all of our extra time or if they are going to constantly keep us away from the body of Christ, it would be appropriate at that moment to, to, to think about turning that down and to instead being content with what God has already given you so that you could stay involved with the gospel work that God has, has called you to. Others might run into somebody and find a, a person that they are romantically attracted to But that might be somebody who doesn't necessarily love the Lord like they do. In those moments, it might be very, very difficult to do it. But that individual, if Christ is first and foremost, must be willing to think about these mandates in the Corinthian letters to not become unequally yoked with a non-believer. They need to step back and say, can I really worship my Jesus the way I need to if this potential spouse doesn't care for the Lord and put him first? There might be an expensive vacation you're looking forward to. There might be a new car that you got your eye on. And maybe that's perfectly okay with the way that the Lord has blessed you. But, but some of us, after careful consideration, might have to think that, you know, as much as I would love to take that trip, or as much as I would love to not have to worry about my car needing to jump every seven days, I think it's more important that I have resources available for gospel work that God might have me do. I don't want to zap all my funds to get something nice for myself if that means I can never do something beneficial to a brother or sister who is hurting and in need. And so we order our finances. We order our lives. We order our free time. We order our relationships. We order our work. We we order our households around the primacy of Jesus Christ. He is first. That is what Paul has done in this instance and that is also what Apollos has determined to do. In all things... May we demonstrate a gospel priority and may that gospel priority anchor even our friendships in the preeminence of Jesus Christ over all things. Paul, Timothy, and Apollos were all allies to the Corinthians. These teachers were also allies to one another. They were on the same team, working for the same goals with the same heart and the same confidence in Christ. And these men may have been dead for many centuries, but they are our allies as well, aren't they? When we read about Paul's missionary journeys, when we read about the boldness and the eloquence of Apollos, when we we read about Timothy's persistence and his willingness to serve and to put his life on hold to be a a vessel of use by God, we learn from these allies and they they are helping us even now as we read this letter, as we look at the scripture that God has given to us through the experiences of these men. We could find wisdom, encouragement, and support not only from other current brothers and sisters who we serve the Lord with, but in those who have done so in the past and have gone on to glory. Some of my favorite friends have been dead for a long time. And it is their books, their writings that they have left behind uh, by which I learn about my Savior, by which I learn more about His Scripture and how I can be a more faithful husband, a more faithful father, a more faithful minister to you. But amidst this encouragement to appreciate the help of gospel allies, Paul also acknowledges that not all are on the side of the church. In fact, many will be in direct opposition to the gospel ministries that we're committed to. Verse 8 says, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and note this, and there are many adversaries. This is not a clear path. The door is open but there are some who would like to tackle me before I have a chance to walk through it, right? If you are a part of God's church, you do have allies, but you also have adversaries in gospel ministry. Some Christians are too afraid to acknowledge that Christians, by nature of their obedience to Christ, must have enemies. But the gospel is such a holy thing It is such a unique and set-apart thing, something so foreign to the naturally sinful heart of man that when you say yes to Christ, the true Christ, and when you determine to follow after Him with your life, people will not only disagree with your decision to do that, but some will hate you. They will have a vivid anger towards you because of your decision to love the God of the heavens and the earth. And friends, that's something we need to come to grips with. As Christians, we cannot expect to be the darling of the world, that all the world is looking to evangelical Christianity as the moral buoy to, to guide us forward in the truth. The world does not think of us that way. Those who do not have Christ see Christians as, at best, a resource that they can use to make their own kingdoms better, but typically their view of the church is one of enemy because the church presents to them the idea of a sovereign God who is mighty and and who has dominion over all he has made. And if that God is real, then every effort of man to oppose that God will come with very drastic consequences. People do not like to be told that they cannot do what their heart desires to do. They have been called into this idea and this belief that your truth is the most important truth that matters. When in reality, the truth that matters most, friends, is God. He is the way, the truth, and the life No one comes to the Father except through His Son, Jesus Christ. And when you are a Christian and you stand for that truthfully, then there will be people who oppose you. In a couple of weeks, we're going to look at verse 22 where Paul gives this sober warning. He says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Now that's a serious charge. In Sunday school, we had a large and vivid discussion about precatory prayers today and whether it's ever okay to ask for God's judgment upon people. But think about Paul's words here. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. God will judge those who reject Christ. And before he has a chance to do that in, in eternity, those who think they are God will judge you, his church. They will judge you as enemies. The adversary of the church is one who has no love for the, the bride of the groom, or the groom. They may outwardly hate him. They might outwardly scorn Christ or make little of him. Or they might quietly hate him by loving a fabricated false version of him. By taking the idea of Christ and then changing it around so that Christ is what they want it to be instead of loving him for who he is. Now in the brief time we have left, we're going to consider three categories of opposition that the church has to contend with. These are things we need to ready our hearts for. We're not going to spend too much time on this, but we as church church members need to recognize that though God has given us the benefit of brothers and sisters and friends in in gospel ministry, that there is also a a landmine full of opposition that we need to be aware of. First of all, we're going to encounter adversaries in the spiritual realm. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, in Paul's time, that spiritual opposition was much more obvious. The apostles were given the opportunity and the authority to cast out demons in Jesus' name, to literally rid people of a, a spiritual force and oppression that had impacted them. In 1 Corinthians, in this letter that we've been reading, chapter 10, verse 20, he said, No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons... And not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So Paul is acknowledging here that there are evil forces at work, principalities in the air that that do war against the church of God. And in a sense, this demonic activity and influence is still something that we contend with today. Uh, the, The format of it might be different than what Paul was contending with, but there are struggles occurring in the heavenly realms even now. The details of which may be largely hidden from our view but the impact of which can be felt and experienced here. The degree of coordinated rebellion that we see in the culture today, along with the widespread pervasiveness of repeating deception and corruption, I believe these things to be evidence that the enemy is still pressing whatever influence he can in an effort to obscure the light of the gospel. There is spiritual warfare happening in the world we are in today. And so what do we do, church? How do we face this opposition? We put on our spiritual armor and we do our best to remain vigilant against the work of our adversary. That means that we surround ourselves with the truth that God has given to us, the belt of truth. We take upon ourselves the breastplate of righteousness, guarding our heart by determining not to walk in the ways of the world and to give in the sinful lusts of the flesh. We strap on the the shoes of the gospel of peace and we take that gospel of peace to those who don't have it yet. We wear the helmet of salvation. We recognize that our minds are being renewed and transformed because of the salvation that God has brought into our lives. We take up the shield of faith. And that faith that God has given to us is a very important tool by which we extinguish the attacks of these spiritual adversaries. And we wield in our hand the sword of truth, an offensive weapon, one by which we, we cut down false arguments and pretense. We, we tear apart things that are built up against God. Nothing can stand against the word of truth. And so we put on our spiritual armor and then we pray for spiritual support. And we appeal to our God who does not consider this wicked advance to be a mystery. He's not, he's not baffled by spiritual warfare. It is not guerrilla warfare to the Lord. And so when we don't understand what is happening in the spiritual sense, we go to our God and we ask Him to stand in the gap for us. We, we ask for Him to supply our need in that regard and for the needs of others. And then finally, we take comfort in knowing that He who is in us is greater than He who is in the world that we have someone on our side that far outpaces the power of any spiritual darkness that we might come up against. So there are adversaries, first, in the spiritual places. And secondly, there are adversaries from outside of the church. From outside of the church. This is in part as a result of the spiritual campaign of deception we just considered. And it's in part because of the inherent corruption of man's own personal sinfulness. The world is full of lost men and lost women who see the admonition of sin as a threat to their freedom. They want to be autonomous. And so when we preach the truth and we stand for what is good, then there will be people who blatantly oppose us. Sometimes that's very obvious, such as someone who hails to atheism, who believes there is no such thing as God. And it's always remarkable to me how much time those who believe there is no such thing as God are passionately spending their resources trying to prove that there is no such thing as God. There is no such thing as God. Why do we need to spend all this time proving to others that there is no such thing as God? But this, this opposition is something that the, face, the church has to face. We have to face uh, the advertisement of sin all around us in a culture where what is wicked is considered what is good and where everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. We have to face the, the blatant disregard for religious freedom. And when when people take away our right to worship God the way that we need to worship God, we've got to be aware of that opposition. We've got to be willing to to do the difficult work of standing in in front of that and, and insisting that we're going to worship God no matter whether or not there are consequences to that faithfulness. Lost men who see the true church as a threat to their false religious endeavors are also a part of this outside church people who would call themselves very spiritual people people who would call themselves very religious people are often seriously opposed to christ because christ doesn't share his glory with anyone christ is not willing to allow all these different churches to exist and then just everyone just choose which one you like the best god is opposed to that paul made a passing reference to a particular case of this type of adversary in the previous chapter of 1 Corinthians. He writes this letter from Ephesus, a place that had a thriving industry for constructing idols. Ephesus was an artistic community. Uh, particularly they made a lot of silver statuettes that were used in the physical worship of idols and gods were manufactured in Ephesus and it was a lucrative business. They they made a lot of money doing this. At least they did until Paul and others Brought the gospel to Ephesus. Upon the conversion of many in that place, the artistic community began to struggle to find buyers for their products because Paul and other preachers were exposing the folly of idol worship. And so in Acts chapter 19, the historian Luke writes, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business. The craftsmen. In other words, this was this was making them money. They were filling their pockets up by selling these little statuettes and saying, Here, these gods will keep you safe. Verse 25. These he gathered together, these artisans, with the workmen in similar trades, and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that God's made with hands. Are not gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. Demetrius is here in footsteps. That's what's going on right here. He knows that the truth is a threat to his lie. She whom all Asia and the world worship, speaking about the widespread idolatry that's going on there, verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged. And we're crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater. And you can continue to read this week in your devotion times if you have time to do it about the great riot that broke out there. And so Paul refers to that in First Corinthians 15. He says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? In other words, the opposition to the church was so crazy there that he counted those those who are opposed to the church as wild beasts. They wanted to devour the Christians. They wanted to tear them to shreds. That is the kind of opposition that the church had to face in that place. And while we don't see that overtly everywhere where the gospel is planted, we will see some form of stern opposition, some form or another, whether it's cultural, whether it's violent, whether it's intellectual, whether it's an attack on freedoms. Those who are outside of the gospel will not be friendly to those who are inside of the gospel. The gospel, by extension, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, was only worth the trouble of facing that kind of opposition if it were true. That's the point that Paul was making in chapter 15. And since it is true, since sin really does cut one off from the living God, and since there is no way for reconciliation to that God except through Jesus Christ, it is worth any opposition we have to face. We must ready ourselves for this kind of criticism, this kind of pressure, this kind of isolation, if necessary. The third category is often the trickiest one to deal with. We've talked about adversaries from without. We've talked about spiritual adversaries. But we also have to be aware that there will be adversaries from within the church of God. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 7. In the Sermon on the Mount, he warns those who will be his disciples. He says, there's a cost to this. When you come and follow after me, this is what you can expect. He says in verse 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good uh, cannot bear bad fruit nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. And thus you will recognize them by their fruits. The fact that they were described here by Jesus as wolves in sheep's clothing shows you what they're trying to do here. They're trying to pass as believers. These are individuals who are in the church of God and they want you to believe that when they sit next to you that you're sitting next to an ally. But under sometimes a convincing exterior that looks quite sheepish, there is in the heart of many who would even call themselves Christians often a ravenous heart like that of a wolf. These wild beasts of Ephesus, we have equivalent wild beasts that that come and join the church. And it's, it's something that we have to be very cautious about because when you come together as a family, you want to trust everyone in this fellowship. You want to be near to everyone. You want to welcome them in. And it is our command to do so. But that also means we have to be very cautious about those who begin to show that their desire to be a part of this fellowship isn't really a desire for Christ, but it's a desire for something different. The Galatians had to fight it, didn't they? They had those who came in and said, yes, we believe in Jesus, we believe the gospel, but you're missing a very important part of that gospel. Not only do you have to believe in the work of Christ, but you've got to be circumcised and you've got to take upon yourself the dietary laws. Haven't you heard? You've got to become Jewish in order for the Jewish Messiah to apply to you. And so they appeared godly, so much so that even Peter went along with their division. Yet the fruit became obvious. Rather than sowing unity among the people, they were sowing dissension. They were sowing division. How do we responsibly tell the difference between the two? How can we tell a wolf from a sheep? It is not always easy. And often as, as Christians, our loving heart means we have to give someone the benefit of the doubt until we see real evidence to the contrary. Bad fruit doesn't always look bad at first. Sometimes, I I know that we work in the food pantry on Saturdays, some days, we'll be packing the uh, vegetables and the fruit in that line. We put together a bag of produce. And uh, I was working with one of your deacons yesterday doing that, and they had these really beautiful bell peppers from Costco that were donated. And, man, they looked nice. And most of them were awesome. But every once in a while, you'd reach in there, and you'd grab one of those, those bell peppers that looked so shiny. And as you wrapped your fingers around and picked it up, ooze would just come out of that bell pepper. Something had crushed it. The integrity of that bell pepper had been compromised. And so now air has gotten into that that liquid in the center and it had begun to just putrefy And the smell. Please volunteer for a food pantry ministry. We need your help. But man, look out for those bad fruit. I'm telling you. Sometimes it looks good on the outside. But it's not until you begin to see the heart that you recognize there's something wrong here. Uh, you see bad fruit when you see somebody teaching anything that opposes the scripture. When somebody claims to be of God but says, yeah, but, but I don't believe that part of what God has revealed to me. Or, or that doesn't really mean what it's meant for 2,000 years for all the saints. Then you know you're dealing with somebody who's not trying to lead you in the right direction. Gently trying to correct them. But if they persist in ignoring the scriptures, they are not truly an ally to you. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. Can you imagine that? Even if an angel were to come down from heaven right now and say, you know what? The Galatians are right. You need to get circumcised. That's not the gospel that has been preserved for us in Scripture. So we know that's an enemy. That's not a truly a, a, an angel sent from the Lord. And so Paul tells us to be vigilant and to know the gospel that we believe So that we're not easily led down the path of believing something that's not truly the gospel. When somebody teaches something that undermines the gospel, they're not your ally anymore. 1 Corinthians 12.3 Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So there must be a, a shared affection and respect for the Jesus of Scripture and for the gospel that He has brought to life In our world, now this can this can actually happen when the gospel is consistently preached, but it's only preached in part. Half of the gospel is not really the gospel, friends. So, if there is a a situation where you've got a friend who everything seems to be right with them, but there there's a huge portion that never gets mentioned. There's never any real regret for sin. There's never any real, true repentance there. Then if that person's only been taught part of the gospel, love them and teach them the rest of the gospel. Sadly, there is no lack, no shortage of people who would call themselves gospel preachers today who will only preach the benefits of the gospel and will never preach the urgency of the gospel. They'll preach the blessing of heaven, but they will not preach the danger of sin. They'll preach the glory of Christ's love, but they will not preach to you that, that Jesus Christ hates sin and will punish sinners. So the whole gospel is our def- definition of what means, makes good fruit. It's not just portions of it, but we must strive for the whole thing that God has given to us. And when somebody who claims to be a sheep but prioritizes man's approval over God's approval, you have to start to ask yourself, is this somebody who really follows the good shepherd? Or are they somebody who really wants to be the good shepherd in, in Jesus' place? Galatians 1, 6-10 uh, continued, says, "For I am, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So the one who is constantly trying to make everyone like them or to, to appear relevant or hip or fresh, be careful of that one. It's hard to say definitively, but when somebody is constantly caught up in the approval of people around them, then you have to ask, what do they think about God's opinion of them? Why isn't that the most important thing? Why does that not define how they minister to the gospel of Jesus Christ? No. Friends, we've got to trust God to protect us from these adversaries and from the adversary. Praise God for giving you friends and partners in the ministry Praise God for a church that you can call your home, that you can be strengthened in and emboldened in your work for the gospel, where you can be taught, where you can be shown mercy. But in all of that, remember that even your allies, even the best of your allies, are sinners like you. They're prone to mistakes. They fall short at times. Even our best earthly allies will fail us. John Mark, faithful missionary, on his first trip, he wasn't such a faithful missionary. He made it only to the island, island of Traos, I believe it was, or Crete, before he abandoned Paul and Barnabas because it was too much for him to bear. Peter refused to eat with those Gentile brothers who had not yet been circumcised. He bought the lies of those Judaizers in Galatia for a time before he was corrected. We read in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 that whole churches in certain areas were starting to fall away, and lend their ears to heretics. They were tolerating false gospels in their church. If you want to learn more about that, Pastor Paul's preaching to our youth on Wednesday nights, and you can pick up the podcast, too. It's a great listen. We have to understand that even the best allies we have on earth here, they're just men. They're just women. Our allies are only as good as their allegiance to Jesus. What a friend we have in Christ. Our greatest ally is the one who will never leave us or forsake us. Our greatest ally is the one who lets us bear his name, that we are called after the Christ. Our greatest ally is the one who intercedes for us every day because he is currently enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. He prays for us even when we fail to pray for ourselves. Jesus is our hope, he is our strength, he is our resurrection. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. What a friend we have in Christ. And because he is a good friend to us, he gives us friends like those in the church who can be a blessing and who can point us to him and help us grow in our faith in the Savior. What a friend we have in Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray in closing? God, we thank you for your grace and ask that you would persist in showing us the truth, God. Please endure with us when we are stubborn. Help us, God, to not desire freedom apart from you God but the freedom that only comes when we are bowed properly to you God help us to understand that when we prioritize you above even our spouse even above our children even above our church God that when you are first all those other institutions become stronger because of it when we put you first God we can be the husbands we need to be we can be the mothers we need to be we can be the missionaries we need to be We can be the the, the regular Christians that we need to be because you are first in our lives. And so help us, Lord God, to not let anything creep in the way. We praise you, Lord, for the deep friendships that are being developed here, God. I pray that we as a people would not be satisfied with surface level. I know your name, I know you go to my church, but I don't know anything about you kind of relationships, God. Help us to want to pray for each other's needs, Lord. Let us care for the saints here. And let us desire to make more saints of the people around us by preaching the gospel and watching your spirit do what only the spirit can do. We praise you and thank you for your grace and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.